What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. And welcome to the 2021 Elgin Fringe Festival. We're back. We would like to take the time to thank you, the festival goers, for your dedicated support of the arts. We could not have done this without the generous support of the City of Elgin, Elgin Cultural Arts Commission, Illinois Arts Council, Elgin Public House, Palmer Foundation, Side Street Studio Arts, the venues, artists, numerous other donors and volunteers, and you. That being said, in order to be an excellent fringe audience, we ask that you please silence all wireless devices at this time. Also, please refrain from taking photographs during the performance unless you're a designated fringe photographer. Please make sure to notice the exits around you in case of emergency. Now, sit back, relax, and remember, whatever happens, happens. On with the show! When they discovered upon their arrival, it was almost unspeakable. We thought all of them were some point where we I'm not guilty. Hello! And welcome to the Bad Taste Crime Podcast. I'm Vicki. And I am Janelle. And we're here to talk about some murder. Um... <laughs> yes, as you're all expecting, I'm sure. Murder! Yeah, murder! <laughs> yes. I know, it's always a weird thing to cheer for. People are always like, yeah, yeah, I like that. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, for those of you who don't know us, um, we are a true crime comedy podcast. Um, I always like to say we're kind of a variety show, mm-hmm. uh, because... We talk about a lot of things, some things that are not true crime, and yes. some things, most of the things that are. So, um, hopefully, you guys will enjoy what we brought for you today. Um, I will also say this is our first live show since uh, the pandemic was upon us. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, we're really happy to be here, especially at Blue Box, um, and working with the Fringe. So, yay for that. Yes. <laughs> Um, before we get too far in, we do want to say, this is that part of the show where we say content may not be appropriate for all listeners. We will be talking of instances of murder and rape and... And murder and... Nope, not mine. No, <laughs> there isn't mine, yeah. Uh, so the way this works is we choose a topic and Janelle picks a story and I pick a story. We don't know what each other has picked. 
until right now. Um, so that's fun. So I, don't know this, I don't know where this is going to go. Um, but Janelle. Yes, Vicky. Would you like to tell us what we are talking about today? Sure. Usually I like to pick something really uh, weird and outside of the box. And, yes. and Vicky gets really upset it's with me because very it's very niche. Difficult. <laughs> yeah. She does not make my life easy. No. That's for sure. No. But for this wonderful live show, I thought that we could do something local. Locally, locally. There so, are plenty of local stories yes. that will give you the heebie-jeebies. So. so I decided to pick something that's a little bit more mid-Illinois. Okay. So All right. passed on through. We're going to go in the Wayback Time Machine to 1944. That is in a way, little way old back. town of Mattoon. Has anyone been to Mattoon? I, I don't recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of like going to Marengo, honestly. It's I like, mean... I feel like it's kind of an out-of-the-way place. It's, it's worse than that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, Mattoon is a really small town in central Illinois, and it's just south of Champaign. And during this time, the most maddening of lurkers was stalking the streets of Mattoon. Tonight, I'm going to tell you about the mad gasser of Mattoon. Yes, thank you. So that was great. <laughs> I love that audience participation. That was... I, I like to pick stuff that's weird. Yes. So mine doesn't, spoilers, actually have that much blood and guts and gore, so I'm sorry to disappoint. Don't worry, I'll hit that. But it, it'll, <laughs> uh, it'll be a banger nonetheless. All right. <laughs> so 1944, in case you don't know, uh, was World War II, guys. What? <laughs> I've never heard. Never heard of, of that? No. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so the 40s actually brought a lot of prosperity to this town, and the discovery of a petroleum reserve led to kind of like a small town oil boom. And over the next two decades, there was a lot of prosperity, a lot of things going on. Now, there wasn't much excitement in the town besides that. It's just your average small town. Uh, the papers were really only covering a lot of the wartime stories, and they were chronicling a lot of the loss of the young men who were sent off to war. So, kind of a downer. But, on September 2nd, we're in the midst of the anniversary of this. Oh. That year, a little old headline came out in the local paper that sent a wave of mass hysteria across the town. And I hope you're ready, because I'm about to unleash my old-time radio voice. It's very good. Are you ready? <laughs> anesthetic prowler on the loose! A prowler who used some kind of anesthetic or gas to knock out his intended victims was on the loose in Mattoon Friday night! Mrs. Bert Kearney and her three-year-old daughter Dorothy were victims of the anesthetic Friday night as they slept in their bed at home. Both have recovered today, although Mrs. Kearney said that her mouth and throat remained parched and her lips burned from the effects of whatever was used by the prowler, who was unsuccessful getting into the house. Okay, so, I'll be honest, <laughs> like, if that's the worst that happens, like, I'm a little parched, I know. my lips are a little dry, I feel like that's not too bad. Not too bad. But that's not where it stopped. Okay, well, <laughs> we wouldn't have a story if it was. <laughs> we wouldn't have a story if that was, and that is the scene, no. So Mrs. Kearney reported that she was in bed around 11 p.m. with her daughter, and this sickeningly sweet smell came wafting into the bedroom window. She said the smell grew stronger, and then she realized that her legs were paralyzed. 
And she yelled out to her sister who was also there. And her sister came rushing in and she's like, what's up? And she also noticed that there was this kind of like weird sweet smell. And so she ran next door to the neighbors and she was like, wake up, they can't walk. And they were all <laughs> confused. So they all ran out over there and the neighbors and the police searched the yard and they found nothing. So an hour, I was kind of waiting for you to be like, she came in and smelled the sickening sweet smell and bam, was on the floor because her leg stopped. <sighs> no, no. It was not slapstick. Oh. <laughs> uh, so about an hour later, when Mrs. Kearney, or when Mr. Kearney arrived home, um, he was a taxi cab driver, and he noticed a man in the yard. So he hadn't even known that his wife had been gassed and she was paralyzed. But he came home and there's this strange man in the yard. So he did, you know, what any person would do and chased him. Um, but <laughs> the man got away, and again the police were called out, and they found nothing. So. That's awkward. That's weird. <laughs> that you come weird. home, there's a dude in your yard, and you go to the house, and your wife's like, oh, man, I lost, like, use of my legs for a minute because someone gassed me. And you're like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> That's like a weird Friday night. You said, what is the, the wild an- Friday night? <laughs> the anesthetic Friday? Mm. Sounds like a wild party. <laughs> my kind of party. Uh, <laughs> now, the article prompted three people to call the police stating that they also smelled something and that was sweet and that they felt a little paralysis. Now, a couple of days later, on the 6th, another article appeared in the paper. Another victim had been attacked. Mrs. C. Cords was now a victim. Now, her mouth and throat had been burned and she had cracks on her lips that bled, supposedly from the fumes that she inhaled. Oh, my God. Now, Mrs. Cords did have some evidence, though, Um, there was something at the scene of her attack. They reportedly found a white cloth left on the porch. So that's a little suspect. Okay. The couple had come home that night around 10 p.m., and they noticed the fabric, and Mrs. Cords just, like, picked it up and was like, what's this? Oh, my God. (laughs) Because my first thought when I see a random cloth is, let me smell this. Yes, yes. Um, So... Don't smell random cloths <laughs> on your porch. Pro tip. Now, I'm sure you've all heard that joke before. Like, does this smell like chloroform? Oh. She basically yeah. did that to herself. <laughs> so, <laughs> her face was burned, um, her knees buckled, and she collapsed when she uh, smelled it. So, not a good idea. Right, not okay. smart. Um, the theory behind this cloth supposedly, is that the attacker was attempting to come in and knock out their dog with the, a chloroform. And then they arrived home and spooked them, and then they dropped it and ran off. Now, the police also uncovered something else in the yard, and it was a skeleton key and a tube of lipstick. Uh, okay. <laughs> when I'm doing I really crimes, don't know where this is going, to be honest. <laughs> when I'm doing crimes, I need beautiful lipstick. So I understand... Um, but it was initially thought that the substance on the, the, the cloth was ether or chloroform, but the catch here is neither of those things have a sweet smell. Okay. So the substances also wouldn't burn you upon contact with your face. Otherwise, everyone who's ever been chloroformed would have horrible burns on their faces. Right. <laughs> Which is not the case. Um, so they were a little suspect with that. And... This is 1940s, so like testing things, forensic evidence, 
Yes. Wasn't yeah. really a thing. Yeah. <laughs> so by September 9th, the papers had reported that there were 25 victims so far and no suspects. The police had some evidence by now. They had the cloth, the lipstick tube, the skeleton key. Um, they also noticed that one of the homes that was broken into had a cut screen, and there was a woman's footprint outside of another victim's window. So, okay. Is it a woman doing the crime? Maybe. Seems like it. And honestly, at that time, that's one of those times of period, or periods of time where it's like, women don't do murder. Right? Women don't That's murder. not a thing they do. No, 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 no. Yeah. Not at all. We don't even think. No. No. <laughs> we just exist. Yeah. <laughs> now, the article on the 9th stated that most of the victims were women and children. But they also gave a description of the of the prowler, and it was just very general, and it said, tall, thin man with a skull cap. Okay, okay cool. Okay, so yeah. like every person right. who's in this town. Right. <laughs> now, the eight people listed in this particular article stated that the prowler had sprayed the gas into their window up to four times, not once. So you have someone just like, puff, 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 in your window. Okay. I imagine it's like one of those, um, like the things that they use for like killing weeds, like one of those pump things. Yeah. Yeah. You probably hear it pump. I mean, maybe. Most yeah. of the people were asleep. So well, yes. <laughs> kind of hard to tell. I mean, who knows? Uh, so the, the police were kind of not sure what was going on. And they stated that they did send out the cloth for some testing, but nothing came back on it. Okay. So all of their theories of what was happening, there was no evidence to them, really. They figured that it might have been some sort of homemade concoction, but they don't really know. So this is going to be um, the next slide. Oh, it's bunch. I did it early. Did you? Okay. Yes. So <laughs> this is like a map of where all the victims were, and you can kind of see generally that they're clustered. And then all of the symptoms are very, I don't know, not, not too life-threatening, I okay. would think. You just parched lips, burnt skin, yeah. you know, your, your typical yeah. uh, sort of thing. This is like allergy season. Yes, right? Yeah. This is just, just hay fever, okay? <laughs> um, now, panic in the town started to escalate on September 10th, which led to an all-out armed militia roaming the streets of the town to keep an eye out for a prowler or anyone who was looking suspicious. The townsfolk were getting very frustrated at the lack of police attention because it's a small town. There was probably like a handful of police and they probably weren't well versed in any of the policey stuff. Right. So there was no other crime happening and they figured, why aren't they doing their due diligence and catching this guy who's gassing everyone? No one actually had reported any burglaries or assaults during this time at all. So, like, what are the police doing? So he's just showing up and guessing yeah. people. Yeah. And the police are like, eh, it's That's fine. fine. It's fine. Eh. So now, it is September 11th, and the newspaper ran an interesting article. City calmer after wild weekend. This would be the start of a very seemingly strange gaslighting campaign by the police department and the media. I see what no you pun did there. Intended. I see what you did there. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, so this article uh, states, as the friendly rays of the morning sun appeared across the tortured city today, sweeping away the night, 
Mattoon residents breathed easier as hundreds of persons who boarded on hysteria and fear of attacks from the mad anesthetist returned to calmer states of mind. However, bellum prevailed in the city Saturday and Sunday when police received dozens of calls from persons claiming they had smelled the mystery gas sprayed by the phantom chemist. I love old-timey newspapers. I love it so much. <laughs> so good. The descriptors are yeah. on point. Yeah. Now, the night before, police arrested a bunch of people who were camped out in front of City Hall, and they were patrolling, kind of doing vigilante sort of style justice. Then, this article was published in a statement on the front page from the police department. To all citizens of Mattoon, asking the cooperation of the public in the mad anesthetic case, Commissioner Thomas V. Wright and Chief of Police C.K. Cole today issued the following statement. We want the public to know that everything possible is being done in this case, and we are grateful for the confidence of a majority of the citizens. However, we have a few points on which we hope to get 100% cooperation. Okay, here Beginning we go. tonight, they are... One, stay off the streets in residential districts unless you have business requiring you to be there. There is no danger in the business district. Two, roving bands of men and boys should be disbanded. They are in grave danger of being shot by some frightened property owner. That is okay. the most small town statement that ever. That really is, yeah. <laughs> Number three, put away the guns now in the hands of individuals because some innocent person will get killed. Oh my the God. only time one should shoot is upon seeing a man peering into a window of one's home. Then extreme care should be used. And number four, don't follow the police car when it's speeding in answer to a call. Persons who persist in doing this will be flipping arrested. I just have this image of like a bunch of people with pitchforks, pitchforks and torches. Oh yes, like that is chasing very much, down the police car. Yes, that is very much the feel of this. Yeah. Case. So by this time, the FBI was called, but they could not come to a con concrete decision either about what was happening in Mattoon. And by the 12th of September, 35 people had suffered symptoms of this mysterious gassing sickness. Now, on the 12th, the police stated that they had come to a conclusion on the case. They were. Done. All right. They believed that there had been, ready? Are you ready? Yes. Buckle up. Okay. No attacks. Like, and the, like at ever? all. Like none of them. None. Were, okay. And that the whole thing was due to mass hysteria, which was fueled by the initial reports in the local newspaper. Okay. So here's the thing is I feel like this mass hysteria deal was probably more realistic back then because mm -hmm. there was a lot of things I was like, oh my God. Oh yeah. This thing is, you know, like the dancing, hysteric dancing oh. thing. Oh, I'll get to that. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I love this idea of them just deciding like, you know, this never happened. Yeah, they're like, you know, guys, I think that you guys are all making it up. So like, we're done with our case. So have fun. Now, they suggested that any form of gas was going into a citizen's home was due to accidental chemical emissions from the Atlas Imperial Diesel Engine Company plant. Now, this plant manufactured diesel engines, and they would test it before it was being sent out. But I don't know if you've ever had the misfortune of being behind a big 
dumb fucking pickup truck who has dualies that just rolled coal in your fucking face. It does not smell sweet. Yeah. That's like <laughs> almost every day. No, it smells like ash. Yeah. So I'm going to say maybe not. So it's very acrid. This was a very sweet smelling. I don't really think that this is a viable answer. Also, there were people working at this plant who were testing all of this machinery. How come they never got sick? None of them wore a mask. None of them ever reported being sick. So there is belief that the police just kind of stated this so that they could just let sleeping dogs lie and be over and done with it. That sounds about right. Yes. So on top of that, because we're in Mattoon, we're close to the University of Illinois, this random student was like, I'm going to check this out. This seems interesting. Okay. So they started to study the case as it was happening. Now, Donald Johnson, who was a psychology student, visited the town the weeks after the incident. And in 1945, he published a study in the Journal of Abnormal and Social Psychology. All right. And his research is cited in actually a lot of textbooks about mass hysteria. So this seems like it could be kind of an iffy article. I read a little bit of it. A lot of folks agree that mass hysteria might have been the answer. But this is kind of what he reasons with. He cites that it's very similar to the Salem witch trials and to the dancing plague of 1518. This is like one of my favorite <laughs> plagues ever. Yes, a dancing plague. In France in 1518, people took to the streets and danced nonstop days on end <laughs> until people dropped dead from exhaustion. And they cite this as a case of mass hysteria. So in his article, he alludes to the fact that all of these cases of mass hysteria are proof that this, in fact, the gasser is hysteria. But I don't think so, because what about those burns? What about the paralysis? I mean, there's physical evidence. People don't just burn their face. <laughs> they did actually have, like, physical evidence. They though, had right? physical like, these, evidence. these people were, like, going to the doctor. They had cracked least. lips. Yeah. It was bleeding. So, I mean... I guess I, I guess more like some records that that was yes. actually had. Yeah. I don't think that everybody would have cracked lips and burns on their face from mass Right, period. right. There was also another case like this in 1933, just 10 years er earlier in rural Virginia, and that was also never solved either. So I feel like there is a mad gasser roaming the United States during the Depression. Oh, God. <laughs> That's all they needed. That's all we need. Um, so sociologist David Bartholomew wrote two books with chapters devoted to the mad gasser, and I highly suggest that you read his books because they are fucking wackadoo. <laughs> it's Hoaxes, Myths, and Manias, Why We Need Critical Thinking, okay. and Little Green Men, Meowing Nuns, and Headhunting Panics. A Study of Mass Psychogenic Illnesses and Social Delusions. That sounds really fun. That sounds metal as hell. <laughs> and he looks like a buzzkill, and he's going to be a buzzkill. Okay. So <laughs> I agree. Bartholomew said that the Mad Gasser case is well known in the realms of psychology and sociology as the classic example of mass hysteria. And in fact, by mid-September of 1944... Even the police chief was publicly announcing that he thought the case was a mistake from the beginning. Okay. <laughs> oh, boy. He stated that the common fears about World War II 
were really contributing to people being afraid. And after all, just prior to the Mad Gasser report, the U.S. troops were preparing to invade Germany. So I don't know if you remember World War One, but there was a whole lot of mustard gas going on. So right. yeah. the fear is valid, I think. A lot of Americans were afraid that they thought that the Germans were going to retaliate and do a lot of chemical gassing on the United States. But that didn't happen. Um, also, what contributed to the fears was the fact that there are 21 prisoner of war camps in Illinois at this time. Oh, okay. 21. <laughs> One of I... them was in Hampshire, just down the road. <laughs> I did not know that, actually. And the German soldiers that were captured were held here, and they were used to work at farms and at canneries, and a lot of them straight up ran away. Okay. And just became one with society. Yeah. So. I feel real safe now. I really do. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, okay. So, now, there is one person who believes that these attacks were real, and it is local native to Mattoon, Scott Maruna, who was a high school chemistry teacher who wrote the book The Mad Gasser of Mattoon. In it, he claims a gentleman by the name of Farley Lewin, who was a town outcast and the son of the grocery store owner, was responsible. Now, Maruna wrote that Lewin wanted revenge on Mattoon residents who had ostracized him for being openly gay. Lewin was tall and thin. He graduated from the University of Illinois with a chemistry degree. And he had a home laboratory. Okay. In fact, one evening before 1944, he had a small explosion in his lab, which made the papers. All right. There is a consensus amongst a lot of chemists who have reviewed this case that it's impossible to even make a gas that affects someone the way that the people were describing their condition. Okay. And the fact that there's no actual physical evidence at all in relation to the gas made it even more suspicious. Yeah. Now, if you've ever listened to our podcast before, you know we talk a lot about police incompetence. And, well, it's 1944, so ultimate police incompetence times. Um, uh, there was no protocol for this kind of a case. And who's to say that they didn't overlook really important evidence? Right, right. I'm sure not a lot of them even finished high school. Unfortunately, they probably didn't understand the science behind a lot of the gases and the chemistry and things that were happening. Yeah. So I'm going to say that I do believe that there was a mad gasser in Mattoon. And if you ask residents of Mattoon today if it's a hoax, you will see a majority of them do believe that someone was gassing the streets of Mattoon. All right. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so oh, yeah. that's, okay. that's some fan art. Of the Mad Gasser of Mattoon. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Okay. Um, that was exciting. Yeah. Do you think it was real, Vicky? Or was it all mass hysteria? Um, I think there's something to be said for, like, the um, sort of, like, placebo effect of mm-hmm. thinking something's happening and therefore bringing on physical symptoms, right? Yeah. Um, it's entirely possible that that is what was happening. Mm-hmm. Um... It's hard for me to, like, ignore the fact that people were having physical symptoms, though. Exactly. Like, to just dismiss that as nothing or as something that was happening to a lot of people, unless it was, like, something from one of the plants in the area that got into the air. But, like, you wouldn't see that just affecting a select number of people. Mm-hmm. So I would probably lean towards there was something going on. 
Like, I don't know if it was a, a mad gasser or not, but, like, mm-hmm. it wasn't nothing. Yeah. yeah. Which is something. <laughs> yep, if it's not nothing, it is sure <laughs> something. <laughs> All right, we are going to move along into something that is not as fun. Not as fun. Not nearly <laughs> as fun. Um, I bring the lighthearted. You bring I'm the downer. I'm always the downer <laughs> of some real serious shit. So um, this local story actually begins in Mountain Home, Arkansas in 1969. All right, everything's still working. Cool. <laughs> uh, 32-year-old... Obi Faye Ash and her husband Lonnie were going about their normal day. The morning of December 3rd, 1969, Obi went out to run some errands, uh, stopping at the Ozark Shopping Center, the College Plaza, and an area drugstore. This would be the last time that Obi would be seen alive. Lonnie returned home from work later that evening. Realizing his wife uh, hadn't returned home, he called the authorities to report her missing. Where's my dinner? No. <laughs> <laughs> I want to report my dinner's missing. I mean, let's be real. Yeah. Uh, a few hours later, KTLO radio station aired a police bulletin with a description of Obi. She had been wearing an orange and green mini dress with an off-white faux fur coat and driving a dark green 1957 Volkswagen. He sounds like fun. <laughs> I mean, it was the 60s. Yes. Uh, this report was heard by a man named James Ryan, who had recalled seeing the car earlier a few blocks uh, from the town square in front of the Baxter Furniture Company. Now, police were shocked to discover not only was the car still there, but uh, Obi's body was inside. She had been bound with her own clothing, placed on the backseat floorboards with her head between her knees. Following an autopsy, it was revealed that Obi had been beaten, strangled, and raped, along with 13 stab wounds in her shoulders and neck. I was not kidding when I said I'm a real downer. All right. Okay. <laughs> Bring the gore. Mm-hmm. Um, so police started searching for any clues as to who might have committed um, this terrible murder or any information as to who Obi was with prior to her slaying. When the car was examined, it appeared all fingerprints had been wiped clean and not a trace was left behind. Police turned to the public's the public and hoped that they had some additional information. To that end, police set up a checkpoint at the intersection across from the furniture store. Highly reliable. To sort of interview people coming in, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there was little to gain from this effort, though, other than a priest who had claimed that he, he had seen the car and a man sitting inside, but it wasn't long enough to, like, get any valid description of the guy, which part of me is like, thank you for not at least being like, here's what I saw, I think, but I'm definitely well, sure it was this. I mean, priests never tell lies. Never. Right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that was very believable. Um. One of the people who traveled through this checkpoint was a man named Mark Allen Smith. He asked the officer who stopped him a few questions about the car that Obi had been found in, 
but was like kind of quickly waved off. They were like, we don't really have time for like somebody just asking a bunch of questions. Get out of here. Classic serial killer move. It totally <laughs> is. And well, you'll you'll see. Oh. Um, Smith would again inquire about the investigation when officers came into Mountain Home Television Sales and Services, where he worked. Because the investigation hadn't made any progress, there really wasn't much for him to say. He did some more asking about the case, but like, he didn't have any information, he says. So let's talk about this Mark Allen Smith uh, for a minute. So Smith was born in Chicago to Charles Gilbert Smith and Dolores Recklin, who divorced when he was like two or three years old. The family moved to McHenry in his youth, and um, Smith was involved in, like, Cub Scouts and stuff when he was younger. However, anger issues in the local elementary school led Smith's mother to move the family back to Chicago, where he attended St. Mary's Catholic School. I mean, that's <laughs> not a great decision. <laughs> How do you think that went? <laughs> As a former rebel myself, I would say not good. <laughs> so the strict rules had an adverse effect, um, resulting in the family moving back to McHenry, and he was re-enrolled in pub public school. Around this time, Smith took up the hobby of killing birds and small animals. Uh, For, he was hunting, right? Yep. It was for Cub Scouts, right? Yep. <laughs> now, this led to an incident in the third grade. While at recess, Smith attempted to strangle a female classmate. She escaped, and the incident was never reported. She was fine. And Classic. then, <laughs> when he was nine, Smith attacked a younger boy with a penknife, stabbing him more than 20 times. Again, the young boy survived. Smith even, like, walked him home what? to make sure. Yeah. Wait, what? Yeah, he's After like, he stab, stab, him? stab. Let me make sure you get home let me, safe. Yeah, let me make sure you get home, dog. I got you. <laughs> like, what? It was the, the Cub Scout in him, I think. Okay. Um, <laughs> so he was fine. Again, no charges were ever filed in this case. By his sophomore year in high school, Smith had dropped out. And in 1966, he enlisted in the Army um, in his sophomore year in high school. Or, I'm sorry, he enlisted in the Army where he was deployed to Vietnam as a helicopter gunner. Smith spent time uh, as well in both South Korea and Germany, where he was court-martialed for three months each time for fighting. Well, he's in the right place, right? The I, Army just makes everyone good and solid. Yeah. <laughs> now, following the 1969 murder of Obifei Ash, Smith moved his wife and child from Arkansas back to his hometown of McHenry, Illinois. Just two months later, another woman would be found dead. Uh, in January 1970, 27-year-old Jean Irene Bianchi left to do laundry at the Suds and Duds in downtown McHenry. Spotting the young woman at the laundromat, Mark Allen Smith drove the block until he knew that she was alone. Then he forced Jean into his car at knife point, saying he wouldn't hurt her if she cooperated. Smith then drove to a remote area where he raped Jean before bludgeoning her in the head three times, stabbing her repeatedly in the neck, chest, and back. Smith then left Jean's body under an ice shelf at the, uh, near the Pearson Bridge. So, like, the river had frozen over, and he broke a hole in the ice. And, yes. Um, 
Jean's husband reported her missing almost immediately when she failed to return home from the laundromat, and authorities began searching the same night. The McHenry City Police, Illinois State Police, McHenry County Sheriff's Office, and FBI all worked on the search, but they were unable to find anything for three full days. Now, at this point, an interesting character enters the mix. Um, 67-year-old Helen Beamsley, who is in the center. Yes, the woman in the center on the slide. Um, who was a self-described spiritualist, faith healer, and member of the Cosmic Circle of Friendship Chicago. Yes, queen. (laughs) Um, Helen claimed to be able to communicate with a higher power via Jesus Pendant Pendulum. Yes. (laughs) I'm loving where this is going. (laughs) She also claimed that when focusing on Jean, she had one of the strangest experiences she had ever had. And that she knew she could feel that Jean was already dead. Beamsley was then brought out to McHenry in hopes that she could point investigators in the direction of Jean's body. Now, I'm just going to say I am entirely skeptical of this kind of thing. Um, Especially around this time, most of it was fraudulent. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Some of it's fraudulent. I'm the skeptic of the group, so... Most of it was fraudulent, Um, but whether it was due to Beamsley's guidance or good old-fashioned police work, they did eventually find Jean's body. I would rather believe a spiritualist found it than police ever solved anything. (laughs) I think they've got a better track record so far. Um, Approximately a month later, Smith was working late at the DeSoto Chemical Company in Des Plaines, Illinois. Only he and 22-year-old Janice Bolliard were left that evening. Smith followed Janice to the basement where he made sexual advances on the young girl, which were repeatedly rebuffed. We always say consent is key. He did not have it. Uh, well, it's the time period. Yeah. <laughs> Angry, Smith choked and beat Janice until she was unconscious, raped her, and strangled her to death. Janice's body was found the following day after her fiancé reported her missing to the police. Another month passes, and then Smith strikes again for what will be the final time. 17-year-old Jean Ann Lingenfelter um, had previously been on dates with Smith. They talked about them being like, I, I kept seeing it referred to as like a prom couple. I don't know what that means. They went on three prom dates? I don't know. Okay. They went on dates. I mean, that's, um, I guess that's like the friends with benefits of the time period, I suppose. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, so seeing the two of them together wouldn't have been really weird. On the evening of May 27th, 1970, Jean left a friend's house after a studying session to meet Smith. She was last seen getting into Smith's car, and when Jean uh, failed to return home, her parents reported her missing. I do have to say, kudos That's, to everybody. They were all reporting people yeah. missing, like, right away. Usually and they're like, oh, they ran away. And the, the 70s. investigated them all right away, instead of being like, give it a few days. They'll be back. It's fine. Um, the following morning, Jean's naked body was discovered on the beach at the Lakeland Park subdivision. An autopsy revealed Jean had been raped, beaten, and strangled before being dumped into McCollum Lake. Smith was Nothing ever bad has happened in McCollum Lake. Um, I've only ever known, I think, one person from McCollum Lake. 
And I don't think I've ever been there. So yeah. Should I keep? I mean, should I keep it that way? Yeah. I don't. <laughs> uh, now here's the thing. Smith was involved in both the searches for Janice Bolliard and Jeanne Lingenfelter, and was actually the person that led them directly to their bodies. It's like they knew where to go. <laughs> maybe he was a spiritualist. Maybe, maybe. Like, he just felt it. Yeah. Um. Once it was revealed that Gene had last been seen with Smith, he was quickly arrested and confessed to everything and more. And Surprise. so much more. Yeah. <laughs> it didn't take long for officials in Arkansas to notice the similarities between the um, three cases in Illinois and their unsolved case for Obi Faye Ash. So they requested a hair sample to compare with the evidence that they had collected at their crime scene, and a match was quickly made, and Smith was charged with Obi's murder. Now, not only did Smith confess to the murders of Obi Faye Ash, Jean Bianchi, Janice Bolliard, and Jean Legenfelter, Smith also claimed to have committed between uh, three and eight murders in West Germany when he had been stationed there. Later saying, actually... Perfect time to do it. <laughs> it was only two, actually. I know I said eight, but I meant two. Uh, although German authorities investigated these claims and interviewed him while he was in prison, there have never been any charges in relation to the murders in uh, Germany. At the time of Smith's trial, there was a moratorium on capital punishment in the United States, and the prosecutors were unable to seek the death penalty. Ultimately, Smith uh, pled guilty to all of the murders, receiving 200 years for each murders of uh, Jean Bianchi and Jean Lingenfelder, and a minimum of 50 years for the murder of Janice Bolliard, with sentences to run consecutively. In Arkansas, Smith pled guilty to the murder of Obi Faye Ash, receiving a life sentence to be served if he were ever paroled by the state of Illinois, which it really does not sound like it's going to happen. In April 1977, Smith attempted to escape from the Pontiac Correctional Center, which earned him an additional 18 years, just like tacked on the end there. At this point. <laughs> I mean, if you're going to be locked up for that long, like, what do you really have to lose by trying to escape, except, I guess, more time? Authorities have been looking into other unsolved murders that they believe Smith may have played a part in, including murders in South Vietnam, South Korea, Missouri, Washington, D.C., and four other states. Although he hasn't been charged with any additional crimes, um, following his incarceration, Smith's attorney, Harold C. McKinney, and writer John K. Hahn took Smith's life story and turned it into a biography called Legally Sane. Is that, like, legally blonde? <laughs> Except with murder. <laughs> Except with murder. The book was released in 1972 and included the confessions to the German murders as well as admitting to excessive use of marijuana, hashish, amphetamine, psychedelics, and alcohol. Well, fuck. <laughs> I mean, again, it was like the 60s and 70s. It's not... Who, who isn't doing that? No. Who isn't doing all of that? <laughs> Uh, Smith was most recently denied parole in October of 2019. He is currently incarcerated at the Danville Correctional Facility and has an estimated release date of May 31st, 2219. 
He can do it! <laughs> um, this would make him 270 years old. He will probably outlive the pandemic, so that's something. Um, that's unfortunate for all of I us. I know, that's depressing. <laughs> um, and that is the story of the McHenry serial killer. Well then. Yes. Um, so... Oh, we have a little time. Yeah. We really fast. Yeah. Oh my goodness. We've never done this before, but we could take some questions. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, we could take some questions if anybody is interested. Anything. Comments, concerns. Yes. <laughs> no. Doesn't seem, no, That's it's fine. fine. <laughs> um, okay, I mean, I'm fine with finishing early a yeah. little bit. So before we go, we will say... If you enjoyed this episode, you can find more like this at thebadtastecrimepod.com. No, badtastecrimepodcast.com. No. Yes. yes. Bad taste Second pod- one. No, <laughs> badtastepodcast.com. That's it. Um, we're also on all of the social media. Mm-hmm. Um, you can find us all sorts of places. Uh, and we would love it if you guys check us out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We also want to say... Thank you to the Elgin Fringe Festival and to the Blue Box Cafe for allowing us to come in today and make this a real dark space. Right? Um, It's dark and spooky and there's sandwiches. (laughs) Sandwiches and coffee and tea. Uh, So I guess with that, this has been our um, episode. Oh, wait, wait, (laughs) what, what? No, we want to say also thank you to Ghostly Podcast for doing our sound today. If you guys are going to be around later, they will also be performing tonight mm-hmm. at 6 o'clock? 7.30. Totally wrong. Very wrong. <laughs> you know, podcasting is a fine line between being totally prepared and totally unprepared. So. Yes. Um, okay, so with that, then. <laughs> that is our episode. That is our episode. We have been the Bad Taste Crime Podcast, and we will see you again. <laughs> The dead won't bother you. It's the living you gotta worry about. Something if I couldn't keep them there with me whole, I, at least I felt that I could keep uh, their skeletons. But no matter what I did, I could not undo the terrible harm I have caused. In Los Angeles, a killer the police are calling the Hillside Strangler has murdered ten young women and left their bodies on the hillsides along the highway. It was as if a wave of evil washed over this town. We are all evil in some form or another.